I couldn't believe he did it. I thought he was playing cowboys and Indians. I didn't think it was real. Right. I thought it was just he was messing with me. He loved himself. Why would he kill himself? You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. My favorite part is the head nodding that we do along with that. <laughs> Welcome back to our podcast. I'm Jake Wiskirchen. He's Michael Sodini. That's when you say hi. What's hi. up? <laughs> oh, no. He's talking about me. Okay. I'm being a horrible co-host. We can't do a podcast without being super clunky in the beginning. Okay. We have clunky endings and clunky beginnings. That's okay. like our thing. <laughs> this would be the beginning, and it is clunky. Uh, it's almost like we haven't done 40 of these already, but still yeah. learning. Uh, and with us uh, down in Vegas with Mike is Deborah Alexander. Hello, Deborah. Hi. How are you, Dick? I'm awesome. Uh, but, you know, I choose awesome because the other choices are uh, something less than awesome, and I'd prefer to be awesome. So, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> uh, thanks for uh, making the trek over to the in-home studio uh, Casa de Sodini over there, and um, I'm glad to have you with us. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say because your story is um, it's tragic, but it's also super interesting, and I think it's empowering and inspiring. So uh, I'm going to kick it down to Mike because he's there with you, and uh, he can tell how this all came together because it's a, that in and of itself is a kind of a cool story about you know degrees of separation and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I got a phone call, or, or I got a message from Maggie and Ken, who are uh, firearms trainers here in Las Vegas, and they were like, you need to talk to this person, and, um, you know, at first, you, you never understand, like, who you're going to end up contacting, and then uh, calling you and talking to you, um, and then you saying, like, I was the wife of Frank Alexander, Tupac's bodyguard, yeah. right? That blew me away, because I had yeah. read Frank Alexander's book. Got your back, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, got your back. Yeah, so it was just, uh, I got chills because it's like, I'm a huge Tupac fan. Like, Mm -hmm. a huge Tupac fan. And and so I kind of grew up, um, well, not growing up, I mean, after Tupac died, I saw your husband a lot because he was in a lot of documentaries. um, Mm -hmm. And he seemed to be always the go-to guy that that they would ask questions of. Because they were super close, right? Yes. He's the only one, actually, I think, that came out and talked about that whole situation when it happened. He, you know, he got a lot of death threats and everything after all of that. But he came out, he wrote a book, he, he had a movie, um, um, he did, and um, it was a um, pretty interesting life. Yeah, so you have a book called The Private Life of Big Frank, Bodyguard to the Greatest of Gangster Rap. Yes. And uh, I read it. It's an excellent book. It, it goes uh, a lot of different places. <laughs> there's there's yes. some happy moments. There's a lot of darkness. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So what inspired you to write that? Well, I um, 
I was told by my therapist that I should write a book because of my story. Never listen to the um, therapist. <laughs> and she, she, um, it was very difficult for me to reopen the wounds and do that. And um, but I did, and I wrote the book. Um, took me three years to write the book. Um, everything I wrote in the book is a true story. Um, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's uh, like an onion. Um, it's got different um, emotions to it. It talks about um, our life together. It talks about um, it talks about our life together. It talks about um, it's a true story of death, PTSD, um, betrayal, um, abuse, um, all those things that I. I lived with being married to Frank. Yeah, I think it's very interesting because you had to deal with the aftermath of what happens to a man, um, A, that was, you know, had a lot of guilt because he was supposed to be protecting Tupac. Yes. And, yes. And, and a lot of people don't, you're like the story after the story, right? People watch this movie and it yes. ends with Tupac passing away, yes. right? But you continue on in that story in the sense that you you meet this man he's the man of your dreams and you know you are the one to kind of carry the burden of the emotional toll that oh, his death took on Frank. yes yes you know when we first got married i worked for i was operations manager for la fitness and um i would come home and he would be home and this was after tupac died and he wrote his book and he was getting ready to do his movie and um I would walk in the house just like a normal person, like he would just come into your house, and he would yell at me. I told you to yell before you come in, you're going to get shot. And like, he was lived, he lived in fear because of what happened. He never let nobody know that, but I mean, we had guns in every room. And this is something I never, never experienced. I was raised in a um, Christian home my grandfather was a pastor i had nothing to be scared of now i came from that into a different world and um i never talked about him i was never allowed to sit talk about him tell him tell anybody who he was or anything so i was the quiet wife mm -hmm. and you know i found out a lot of things after the fact but yeah yeah and so when you <sighs> So, so basically the backstory, or at least in, in your book, is you talk about you guys met at the gym. You guys both had bodybuilding yeah. um, in common. Yeah. Um, he presented himself as a, a man of God. He uh, did. He did. Right. He, he um, uh, would come into the gym, um, and I worked at the front desk, and he would bring me food, and he would give me things, and he would always try to get me to go over to his place and see. He had a little ranch. And, um, and I thought, oh, this guy's a player. You know, I don't want nothing to do with this. And I didn't even know who Tupac was. I wasn't a right. Tupac fan. Yeah. I was country western. And um, so he uh, would come. And he came in one day with a shirt and it said, Man of God. And I said, oh, Frankie, are you a Christian? He goes, yeah. 
I go, wow, really? And then that's how he got into my life. And we started dating. And we were only dating for three months, and we got married. So it was like a whirlwind. Yeah, yeah. he asked me on horseback, all those things that, you know, was great. But, yeah, I met him at the gym. And, and from there on, my story's in my book. Right. <laughs> and it, it's, like I said, it's a very fascinating story because it really... You take a man like Frank, who is, you know, just in great shape, almost a celebrity of sorts in, in that world because of, of yes. who he was hanging around with. And he, he had been a bodyguard to many other people besides yes. Tupac, Manny Pacquiao. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, and, and like I said, you had to kind of deal with this um, emotional baggage that he carried. I always had to stand behind him. Right. I never, he was the one that was the light. You know, so I stood behind him, and um, he 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 had a lot of friends. People loved him. You know, he had that aura about him. He would walk in a room, and he'd say, "Hey, Frank, how are you?" He'd go, "I'm blessed and I'm highly favored," and he had that just amazing light that people liked, and he drew people to him. That's the part I was so in love with. Mm -hmm. You know, that good part. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it. But we all have a dark side. We do. <laughs> we do, and and we can get to the parts of that later. Um, I I kind of want to just hear what your, because in the beginning of the book, as the story kind of you know goes, you guys are great. It sounds like in the beginning it was a lot of fun, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, you kind of were living this the high roller lifestyle, right? Right. right. Um, buying a ranch, yeah. Uh, I, I think you had said it was like one point two million dollar yeah. ranch. One yeah. point, yeah, one point yeah. two million. We bought a, a. He saw it and he had a vision. It needed to be fixed all up. It was a, a repo, and we got it for one point six and one point six million. We paid for it, and um, he um, he. 45 days. We lived in it for 45 days while they fixed it up. I mean, we were taking showers outside, and um, but he but he had he had a vision and he made it gorgeous mm -hmm. from what it looked like like a it looked like a concentration camp when we first moved there. But after it was all done, we had pavers and granite and and um, horse paddocks. And Was that your first marriage? No, it's my second marriage. Okay. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, you just said I that. talk about that. Yeah, in you my did book. talk about it in the book. Yeah. So, what, like, I guess, how would, how do you, why, why does this happen? Why do people meet, right, and, and fall that deep in love, especially after a, a first marriage <laughs> that, that has failed, right? Like, yeah, yeah. you had a lot of hope. Yeah, well, see, I, I was very grounded with God. Um, more so than I am now, but I was very grounded with God, and I had prayed. I said, God, you know, this time I don't want my marriage to fail, and um, if if He can ask me on horseback, and before I turn um, forty, I would know that this would be right. And um, Frankie asked me on horseback. I turned forty in September. We got married in in um, June sixteenth on Tupac's birthday. And um, I figured, hey, this was right. And um, but once I married him, I got to see 
you know, things that, you know, he was dealing with, he struggled with. Um, um, he would smoke weed. Um, it would seem to make him more relaxed, you know. Um, he, he had a lot of guilt because of Tupac's death. And he would always say, a morning till I join him. And I would say, why do you say that? Don't say that. Um, and I think that was probably one of the things why, you know, he just couldn't live with himself. And that was maybe one of the reasons why, and in other reasons also, that he just took his life. Yeah, I mean, Jake, uh, I, there's a lot to unpack with this man. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, he, a lot of people probably would, take his life in terms of like trade places with him for the experiences that he had you know like if someone said to you you know you could live to your 90 and not live right and just kind of have this like regular existence he did so much right the man had accomplished so much he was in the marine corps he knew a lot he he was a bodyguard he, he was a bodybuilder a, a pro bodybuilder yeah. mr world I mean, everything he touched turned to gold. So he he would touch it, and it would happen. It was like he had this this blessing following with him all the time, this favor, you know. Yeah, I want to uh, unpack a little bit of this. Uh, I mean, you you already you know cut cut to the chase, so to speak. Uh, by and we'll we would have obviously advertised this in the show notes, but um, he did take his own life, and so there's. There's always questions unanswered when people die mysteriously, but especially when they take their own lives. And part of what our psychology compels us to, to do is to ascertain certainty, get answers, right? And and, um, and if we can't get answers, we can seek meaning. And beyond answers and meaning, we're left with a real emptiness um, that doesn't provide a lot of traditional closure. Uh, traditional closure, I think, looks like being able to point at something and, and attribute causation you know or causality say so this one thing led to this other thing and there we go um and i'm wondering if maybe you can shed some light maybe for the listeners to how you went through the process right of, of finding your own peace and closure with it and if you're st still seeking it but also what was it like trying to put those pieces together so you could uh make sense of it and then we can we can get into the Okay. I guess the, the, the lead up, you know, and some of the, the signs and symptoms okay. that people tend to see and, okay. and that kind of thing. Okay. But I'm, I'm curious where you are now. Um, you know, have you have you achieved some sense of closure and really what, what writing did for you? Well, let me tell you, um, I thought writing the book would change the way I feel. I struggle still every day with the dragon that I talk about in my book. Um, I am I uh, I I I. Started with going to counseling in the beginning. Um, I went to suicide meetings. I, I couldn't understand because I understand they were saying that human, it's human, humans want to figure out what happens. So we constantly figure it out. But when someone takes their life, you can't figure it out. And no matter what I did, it went back to the same question. Why would he do right. that in front of me? Why would he do that? Now, you know, he pointed the gun at me first. Right. And then he went blank. And then he put the gun to his head. And I was maybe two feet from him, 
when he when he shot himself there there are a lot of things that i cannot still remember to this day because um it's crazy how your body goes into flight mode and um i just remember i ran out i ran in and i said get up stop messing around because i thought he was playing but then i smoked gunpowder and i'm like oh my god he shot himself then i grabbed the phone ran out Dial nine one one. Can't remember talking to the cops. Can't remember a lot of stuff since then. But um, I, I am very sad inside. I guess I could tell you, I have um, uh, a pain in me so deep that it cries for mercy. Um, I would like to be able to help people who struggle with that because it's um, it, it's not it's not good um, to. Um, uh, I don't want no one to fix me. I just want you to listen because I don't think you can fix me. You know, um, I've, I've, I've went to all different things to hypnotists, to, um, to, to people that read my cards to tell me, Hey, you this, you're, I mean, I'm looking for all these answers, right. trying to make myself better. But, I, but I, I mean, you have an answer for me? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I wish. Uh, that, that's a, that's the, the magic wand theory, and I don't, uh, my, mine broke, and I have yet to go to Ollivander's to get it fixed. Oh, uh, so I, I, can't, I can't wave my wand and, and help people in the way that I think maybe they think we can. But yeah. what we can do is we, we try to walk through um, making peace and letting go, right? So I, I, just so you know, in the listening audience, as a reminder, I do, I do a lot of emotional functioning for a living. It's kind of right. where I root myself and understanding right. cognitive, meaning thinking processes from your emotion or your limbic processes. Uh, I teach it in a wave, right? And so the, the wave comes, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to every emotion. And that's, uh, that's just the way it is. Environment gives us a stimulus and uh, however much time we spend in that emotion is up to us. Um, whether or not we feel something is not up to us. So we get control of our emotions by how we conceptualize them, how we think about them from the frontal lobe. And for the listening audience, you can't see me tapping on my forehead here. Sometimes I end up looking like a third base coach and tapping front and rear and wiping off on my arms. But um, the idea is that <laughs> if we can understand the origin of the emotion in this case sadness deep 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 anguish you know pain then we can make sense of it embrace it as our own set it aside and move forward and what's incredibly challenging about that is the is the order of magnitude of those waves so if you're not good at practicing the little waves of like getting through something and being disappointed and then moving on you're not going to be good at the very big ones like a uh, sudden death of a loved one especially when it happens in front of you which is not only painful in a sadness context, but it's terrifying in a fear context. And, um, and that's usually what we would call trauma, when, when your ability to tolerate the amplitude of the wave outstrips your practiced development of tolerating the waves. So we can see this in children, we can see it in adults, we can see it in our military and our first responders and whatnot. Um, so what you're experiencing now is you're, you're still in the process of going through that very large emotional wave is what I would speculate. And, uh, eventually you, you, you get through, right. Or you, or you get stuck and then you kind of stay there for a while and it does various things. But, um, for context, I'm, I'm curious what, how long ago was it? 
Mm -hmm. um, he took his life. It, w it was on, um, it would be eight years. It will be nine years in April this coming year. That's a long time. That's a long time. Yeah, yeah. But it took me, it took me, um, I started writing the book in 2015. And it took me three years to finish the book. And I was just ripping the scabs off yeah. and ripping them off again. And I just didn't think I could make it. I would fall to my knees and then I'd crawl back up. And I said, I've got to finish this book. Yeah. I've got to finish this. I think, I think what I want to uh, communicate to the audience is that I ask these questions not because it's gratuitous and I'm curious, but because it, it frames that grief is a process and the process is very individual for every person. So there is no, I, I would invite people to, to caution against making comparisons, right? So you, you're a suicide loss survivor is the, is the terminology we use, suicide loss survivor. Uh, there are other suicide loss survivors out there. And, and I think our natural human temptation is to compare stories and, and experiences yeah. as though that'll give us some, some barometer, some, some guardrails on like, okay, it's, it's been too long or it's not been long enough. And I, I would say throw that out the window. However long you need to take is however long you need to take. And so if you're listening to this and you're like, oh man, her story sounds like mine. I've just never, I've never gotten through the grief. I've never gotten, you know, I, I'm halfway through the process. I'm just beginning the process. It's, it's entirely individualized. So um, I asked just to provide some context and some, some compassion for, for people who may be listening and also still struggling. One of our good friends who has been on the show and works with Walk the Talk quite frequently, Chris Jackamick, is a retired Air Force. Uh, his brother took his own life with a firearm. And he now works in postvention, and Chris will tell you he still he still grieves, you know. Um, and the degree to which people grieve is also very very individualized. So that's all to say that what you're going through isn't unique, you know. It's not it's not oh man I'm I'm worse than somebody else. Um, it's uh, it can seem that way sometimes, but as long as we try to avoid making comparisons to other individuals who are going through their individual process, um, we, it allows us the time and space needed to to process through. And I want to say one last thing before I kick it back, because uh, I know there's so much more to say, is that sometimes when we when we endeavor something like a journal or a book, like you wrote a whole book, like I'm, I'd like to be published someday. <laughs> um, but uh, that's, that's cool, you know. Um, but what I think we expect is that there's some sort of uh, finite completion upon completion of the thing. And that's Absolutely. not always true. And the mm -hmm. reason that works, I'll go back to the, the cognitive emotional processing, is because we're trying to activate one part of the brain to make the other part of the brain uh, satisfied. And it doesn't work that way. They, won't, they don't work in, con in, uh, in conjunction. They, work, they go back and forth. But um, trying to seek an answer, which is a, a logical process, to something like pain, which is an emotional process, is just often very unfulfilling because they don't; those two parts don't talk to each other. And I've experienced this many times over, and um, I got tons of stories I could tell. But that's just to say, you know, when you're seeking logic to a painful thing that doesn't have any apparent answers, and even if they do have apparent answers, like there's a note left or something like that, or you can see the pattern, you go, yeah, this makes sense. It still doesn't take away the pain, just because it makes sense and you can understand it doesn't take away the pain. So. Um, right. I just wanted to throw that out there for people who may be struggling, um, you as well, obviously you're right on my screen. Um, if that helps alleviate some of the struggle, uh, then you're welcome to, to, you know, embrace that. But, um, I, I guess, um, my, my next question that I'd want you to expound upon a little bit, cause Mike shared some of this stuff is as you were going through the relationship, um, did you see the, did you see the darkness and try to 
ignore uh-huh. it or did you see it and you're like, oh, this is a big problem. We should probably like address uh-huh. this. Mm-mm. No, uh, I, I, I never bothered anything of Frank's. I, 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 I didn't see any darkness. I did as well. I think as the marriage began to get more, he began to get more controlling and more um, verbally abusive to me. Um, he was very, uh, he would put me down a lot and and make me feel like I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even work at McDonald's. That's how smart I wasn't. Um, um, I was pathetic when I would cry. Um, and, and that constant banging on me just like, ah, oh, exhausted me. But I didn't believe in divorce. I wanted to work my marriage out. I wanted to make it work. I mean, we got a, he would come with cards after he did that, and he would apologize and say, oh, I'm sorry. This is tough love. This is tough love. I come from a different, different background than you do. This is tough love. And I love you. I just want you to know, you know, don't, you know, don't go nowhere. You know, you're my angel. And so I stayed. I stayed. And I stayed, and I kept him grounded for many, many years. Um, He had been married three other times, and um, all the other women didn't stay. But and they all came forward and started talking to me after he did what he did because they were all afraid. Oh wow! And they were and they were all tell me, "Wow, man, Deborah, I just want to let you know you're an angel," and you know. And they would tell me what their experiences was. So they saw that dark side too. Yeah, you said something earlier that is completely dark to me. And you mentioned it a couple times in the book. Yeah. That he pointed the gun at you. He did. Like, do you ever look back at that and Mm. now realizing that he had the ability to take his own life with a firearm and think... Well, this is what I thought. When I was just taught, when he came home from the movies that day, um, the day he took his life... Um, he went downstairs, and he was upset. He thought I messed with his uh, uh, safe, and I hadn't. And so uh, I went back upstairs. I came down to see if he had got it open and asked him if he needed help. He had got it open. He had um, his gun resting against the, uh, the chair of his office chair on top, and it was in one of those little cases where you unlock, and it was the um, Beretta, 40 caliber Beretta, I think it was. It was a... Um, he, he, I thought he was just playing with his gun. He played with his guns all the time. It didn't mean nothing to me. I was looking and watching him. I'm like, oh, I'm talking to him just like, you know, I'm so happy he's home. Like, daddy's home. I'm happy I'm happy you're home. And he say one word to me. He just gets his gun out. And um, I'm thinking nothing, nothing, nothing. He gets his gun out and he... And I didn't even realize he was putting the, the, the bullet in the chamber. I didn't even realize it. He pointed it at me, and he put the, uh, the bullet in the chamber, and he said to me, um, well, he said this prior many times because he was in law enforcement. He knew about guns. He was in the Marine Corps. He said, never point a gun at someone without you intend on using it. He had pointed that gun at me because he would always point him at the ground. This time he had pointed it at me. And then he smelt it. He put it to his head. And I'm looking at him. He just went blank. And he went bang real loud. And uh, and um, I don't remember, you know, why he, I don't even know why he would do that. But 
Um, I, I couldn't believe he did it. I thought he was playing cowboys and Indians. I didn't think it was real. Right. I thought it was a, just he was messing with me. He loved himself. Why would he kill himself? Yeah, I mean... Why it, would he do that? And he knew what he was doing. The gun didn't even move. Right. He, he was so strong, it just stayed there. And then when he started to crumble, I could swear there were angels in that room that day. They had to be. Because something just kind of laid him. He didn't, his gun safe was open. Something kind of just laid him on the ground. And uh, and I can't remember, the. it was a mess because it was a hollow point. Um, I can't remember that. Um, I can't remember uh, much of anything after that other than when I looked at him on the ground, I saw peace, and I, I saw, it looked like oil was coming out of his head, but it was like paint, so I'm poured. But his whole head still looked okay, but they said, they wouldn't let me see the pictures or nothing. They said it was a mess. So... God was in that room that day, and the angels were there watching me. And um, but since all of that has happened, um, I like we talk. I struggle with my um, with my sadness and my grief, wondering if it's something I did that caused him to do that. Was there something wrong with me? And even when we had the funeral, everybody was talking how awesome and great he was, and he was. But the and they were looking at me like I was, I felt like I did something. You know, that's what happens to a lot of people after people die. People blame other people. And, and I, I was just like so traumatized, so yeah. traumatized. I, I've been guilty of that. When I was younger, um, I had an ex-girlfriend who took her life. And I remember they asked me to go to the funeral. Yeah. And this is, I, I'm not... You know, I tell this story because, like, people can change, right? right. Um, right. I remember I told my friend I'm not going to go to her funeral because if I see her current boyfriend there, right. I'm afraid of what I'll do to him. And that was just the wrong way of thinking, right? right. Like, it was just, I don't know what that was because it, it technically isn't his fault. But I had this kind of theory, like, it's on your watch. Like, yeah. yo, what happened? So yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sure there are other ignorant people out there that oh, yeah. would do the same thing to you, right? Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, you know, because the funeral was amazing. There was maybe a hundred people there. I mean, cars. It was like an old-fashioned funeral. Cars and cars and cars and cars following. He had a lot of followers, a lot of people who loved him. Yeah, it's, a, it's a pretty common practice for people to, try, again, we go back to trying to find reasons and ascribe meaning. So, you know, blame is one of those ways to do that. Um, and... I say regularly, blame doesn't help in anything um, because let's pretend that you can pinpoint this on something or someone. Okay, now what? You still you're still left with the sadness. You're still left with the pain. So instead of trying to continually analyze the reasons, what we what we want to encourage is process of of moving through and moving through and saying you know this thing happened and it's in the past and continuing to unearth theories or, or uh, try to ascribe causality only continues to give dead uh, you know, life to this dead moment of the past. And even if it's uh, a mistake that we made uh, that doesn't result in death. It's like, I, would, I, I wish I hadn't uh, drank so much the other night, you know, and then I wouldn't have missed work the next day. And um, you try to figure out why, why was I, why was I that drunk and, uh, and all that stuff. 
it doesn't matter because as you're as you're mentally spending time fixating on the on the dead moment that you can't resurrect anyway it's gone it's in the past um you're missing present life right you're 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 mentally not present for now and then the more often you do that unfortunately what ends up happening is you end up getting more reasons to fall into more sadness because you've missed life the whole time you were mentally not present for it it's a very very challenging process um and it almost seems like sometimes if you and i'm put air quotes in this if you can't see it on the on the youtube um if you don't quote unquote spend enough time grieving, then it seems like you've disav- you, you've um, you've disrespected the the person, right? And uh, and that's a that's that's just on the individual, you know. If you, if you want to go through that process and say, well, I haven't spent enough time grieving, therefore I need to spend more time. I would invite the person who's struggling with that. And I'm not saying you're doing this ever, but um, some people do. And I would invite them to say, well, well, how much is enough? Because ultimately, it's up to you to choose when right. enough is enough, and uh, and then be at peace with that too. Well, you know, Jake, when he did what he did, and then that's when the Pandora box was open, and all the other stuff that he was doing, I found out about, and I was I, w- I already was grieving, and now I'm hit with this double whammy, and all. I mean, I, I had. I, had a guy, a young man, um, come to the funeral calling me mom, who was a son, his supposedly son. I never even knew he had a son. He introduced me to him as his cousin. I mean, I'm not sure wow. what my what my marriage was like, you know. I mean, you have no idea the things that I found out after he did what he did. So perhaps he was living with a lot of guilt, and he couldn't live with it anymore. And it just finally caught up to him. Perhaps. I don't have the answer. Only he can answer why he did what he did. Right, right. You know, because I'm not in his head. Yeah, d- just, to, just to clarify so everyone understands is listening, it's, you got hit with some whammies after he passed away. You found out that he, he had an affair. Yeah. He had an ongoing affair with somebody. Young girl. Uh, young girl, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and that's one one of the things that I love about this book though is because you 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 talk about what people go through right like like you even when you talked about Frank getting older and not getting the jobs yeah. the jobs drying up yeah. you saying a younger girl right yeah. and pretty much yeah. saying like that yeah. that hurts our ego right like yeah. Yeah. regardless of how strong we are and you obviously are are a tough person like what you've been through but the vulnerability I appreciate that you know. Well, I opened up everything in in the book. It's uh, it's it, it, I have people who read it and they're just like, "Wow, Dad, that's I didn't expect that." Just like you said. Yeah. Well, because you don't expect that, you see this person that is just see. I'm trying to heal, so to heal, I have to tell my story. Now, I had told my story to the world. A lot of people wouldn't do that. But I only did it because who my husband was. And everybody, you know, I I needed to say, okay. Now, I had told him that I was going to write a book before he died. And I I never knew I was really going to write a book. But I said, I'm going to write a book. And I'm going to, because at the end when I was finding, when I found out about that girl thing and stuff, I was like, that's crazy. And, um, I mean... Boy, what a life, Jake, I, I lived. 
Yeah. A crazy life. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we're, we're a suicide prevention organization at our heart and um, specifically right. firearm suicide. And right. the story that you tell, it, it almost, it's really frightening to us because we're out in the community saying responsible storage, right? Um, keep, keep the guns locked up and responsible. And, and if anybody's ever, in a, right, right, right. And, and if anybody's ever in a time of crisis, uh, what steps can we take to continue making sure that everybody stays alive and also safe? And we've got some really neat ideas about ways that we can lock down safes and, um, you know, to get guns out of the house and all that stuff. And we're obviously we, we battle legislation that, uh, inhibits that, but you know, you describe this and it's like, is there a way that you could have even had measures in place or was he so determined that it wouldn't have mattered anyway? You wouldn't have seen it coming because it was his typical norm to, you know, like you said, play with the guns. And, um, it sounds like it was very sudden. And I guess I'm wondering, it was, could anything have been done, you know, or or do we need to just acknowledge I did, that sometimes you can't stop I didn't, it? I didn't, I didn't expect that. Now, let me tell you, prior to that time, probably a month or two to that time, he had put the Glock to his head upstairs. He said, let's die together. And I said, I ran out and I said, you are crazy. What's wrong with you? Well, I called the police after he left and I said, mm, this is what he did. Well, you have to fill a police report out, and we're going to take his safe and all his guns. Mm. Are you kidding me? I couldn't do that. Mm. He would have been upset. I was afraid of him in that way. I would have never done that to him. He made the money. That's what he did for a living. He had CCWs in every single state. I mean, Jake, this is a classic walk the talk America situation where this man was afraid to even go get help. And also just because he was an alpha man. He was a manly man. Marine cop. Manly man. And he was everybody's rock. He was everybody's rock. So when he crumbled, people couldn't believe it. They're like, oh my gosh, we couldn't believe it. He never once let you know that he was going to crumble. Well, and imagine imagine the, the burden that that creates on a person. Believing oh, yeah. believing that you're everybody's rock, having everybody tell you that they're your rock, of course you're not going to think that there's a way to turn. You know, because you, you might... I, let's set all the psychological stuff aside for a second in, in the, you know, the belief systems and um, thinking that you can't show weakness or vulnerability. If you literally believe there's no options anyway... What, what is the path out when you're carrying so much burden? Yeah. You know? yeah. Let me tell you. He was on the 700 Club uh, after Tupac died. And um, he had been watching the 700 Club. And um, he gave his, he had his gun. This is before I was married to him. This was his third wife he was married to. And he had the gun on the coffee table. And he talks about that. And I'll send you the link to that. Um, he talks about it, and it's on you. It's on YouTube, and he says. Uh, so they're talking to him, and he says, "Yeah, I was watching the Seven Hundred Club, and I was um, uh, ridden with so much guilt because of what happened to Tupac that I was ready to take my life." And then I saw the Seven Hundred Club, and I saw these people that were dealing with something, and I gave my life to Jesus. And all this made it better. No, 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 no. Yes, Jesus can heal a lot of things. But he puts people like you and other people in the world to be 
helpers. Like, yeah. I, I get help for my problem. You know, I have God. I pray, but it doesn't solve my problem. Right. Well, and one thing that I've said you know? uh, previously on our podcast is uh, something that my pastor has said, which is God answers prayers through people or with people. Yes. And the 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 interesting rub there is you have to be willing to accept that, right? It's um, yeah. You have to accept that somebody's blessing to you in your life is a gift, and we can reject gifts. Um, I don't know anybody who typically does that, but but what we do, you know when it's a physical thing that you're giving somebody, you don't typically reject it because it's, it's insensitive. And um, but when it's it's something that's not tangible, that's uh, a conversation, a validation, uh, just a warm space to come, it's a little easier to say, "No, nah, I, I got this. I got it on my own. I don't want I don't want that gift, right?" Um, and it's right. it's really hard to to combine those two worlds when you say. Well, I believe in miracles, and I believe in the unseen. Um, and then, it's that you know, when it presents in your life, it's hard to wrap your head around. It's like the guy, you know, the, the old story, the, the guy who's in the flood, and the waters are rising. He's on the top yeah. of his house, and uh, somebody in the boat comes by and says, "Hey, I'm here mm-hmm. to tell you, oh, God will save me." And the water keeps rising. The, another boat yeah. comes by and says. You know, hey, come on, get in the boat. No, God, God will save me. And the third boat comes by. Hey, get in the boat. No, God will save me. And the water keeps rising. Finally, a helicopter comes in, and and they're yelling at the you know through the bullhorn. Hey, get in the get in the grab the ladder. We're gonna take you. No, God will save me. And then he you know ends up drowning and gets to heaven and right. talks to God and says, God, why didn't you save me? I had faith. He says, I sent three boats yep. and a helicopter. Yep, absolutely. He he sends things to help you. Well, you know he he. He he was a very proud man, and uh, I tried to get him to go to counseling. I told him, let's go to counseling, let's get help. And he would uh, say, oh, you sound like my, my wa- sec- third wife. And um, he, wouldn't, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't get help. Mm-hmm. I couldn't make him get help, you know. And um, when he did what he did, oh, man, that was not... It was like a movie. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. You know? Yeah, one of the interesting things you you say is, like, he loved himself. He like, loved, why would he do Oh, that he himself? loved himself. He's eight, eight personality. His cars were immaculate. His closet was immaculate. He was immaculate. Everything he did was always to perfection i never could follow behind him because it was hard living with a person like that because he was constantly um constantly putting me down constantly telling me what i need to do constantly telling me how horrible i do this or how horrible i do that but i always tried to do it the way he wanted me to do it when i was around him you know but that's just how he was he was this perfect I mean, look at the picture of him as a bodybuilder. Now he's starting to crumble. He has a heart attack. His bicep breaks. His tricep breaks. His back is hurt. Yeah, a lot of this has to do with a a concept, you know, that relates to aligning expectations with reality. And and if you view yourself as uh, bulletproof, you know, um, forgive the Mm -hmm. expression, I guess, but, you know, or or, uh, made of some material that is indestructible, and then 
and that's your perceived reality, right? Christian Conti calls this the cartoon world. Uh, then actual reality walks in and says, no, somehow you got to reconcile those. And if you're not good at in- incorporating new information and changing your mind and meeting reality where it is, you can, you can have some real you know, psychological crises going on uh, with, with the cognitive dissonance that occurs where you're like, no, 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 I have to be this thing. But actual reality is telling me I'm not. Uh, it's very, very challenging. Um, that's, that's why I encourage people also to hold very loosely to their beliefs. You know, you can be passionate about things. You can be well-rooted in them. Um, but one of those beliefs is our sense of self and the way that we see ourselves. Um, but we also want to hold loosely to that. I mean, use myself as an example of, you know, I, I, I wear many hats. I carry many labels. And if one of those things ceases to be uh, functional, uh, for example, recreational league baseball i still play hardball at 43 years old poorly but um but i play um this i can i can say with peace now this is gonna be my last season playing hardball and so i don't get to call myself baseball player anymore even even poor you know slightly below average rec league baseball player um i can't i can't do that anymore because my back and my knees and my torso are giving out it's just it's just part of the the injury history and and getting old and i have to be at peace with letting go of that particular component of my identity uh so i want to be able to shift into something else you know i wasn't a dad and then i was a dad and i have to learn how to do that and um it's 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 challenging, and, and I invite people to, to really hold loosely to the way that they see themselves so that we don't end up with such strong yes. cognitive dissonance that we don't see a way out. And I think one of the things that Frank was experiencing was he saw himself as needing to be ultra-strong to carry everybody else's stuff. Yes. And, um, yes. and then he realized he couldn't, and he couldn't even carry his own stuff. And, um, yes. and, it's, and it creates a, almost a trapped uh, sensation uh, where you don't see a way out except uh, to to punch out a life. Yeah, and he and he, you know, he, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a part in the book where you talk about his mom passing. He's from Chicago, and you said like immediately when his mom passed, like his family calls him and they expect him to pay for a funeral. They always thought we were the Bank of Alexander. Mm-hmm. That's my, and and he was always like that. Even if we we struggled with things like money was tight, we had three, four loan modifications. Uh-huh. We almost lost our home once. All these things people didn't know about him because he didn't tell people his business. Everyone thought he was this guy. We had a beautiful home in Marietta. It was a. a uh, an estate. It was uh, four thousand square feet. It was like three and a half acres. It was gorgeous. Yeah, and there's another another example of that, right? The way that you present yourself to the world, and the way that that you think the world needs you to be, and then internally you, you know that's not true or it's not accurate, um, and you can't reconcile those, right? And so, you know, again, to the listening audience, if we can allow this death not to be in vain, um, you know, maybe maybe don't make the same mistakes of perception in thinking that you have to continue to to perform when deep down deep deep down in some cases you know that not to be true um it's okay to ask for help you know it's okay um yes yes you know we would uh he would he would cut coupons out to you know go out and eat and stuff like that because but people didn't know that you know they didn't know they didn't live with him they didn't know 
that part of him. They just thought they saw him. Oh, wow, look at Frank has four cars and a right. horse trailer and four horses. And, but we could barely even feed the horses. Yeah. It was bad. I lived in that life, you know, and I wasn't allowed to. I had to stay quiet, but now I wrote a book. Yeah. Because I, I'm not quiet anymore. I'll never allow anybody to do that to me again. Yeah, there's reading the book, and I, I was sitting next to my wife when I hit some of the darker parts, like especially when you yeah. found out like the affair. And, and he talked totally different. He, I, he was like very educated. But when in the emails, they were like, I didn't even know who that person was. It was like he was some kind of thug guy or something. Right. I was like, who is that guy? It was like he had a different personality. And I don't know. Is that possible? Can he do that? Well, when you're trying to walk in two different worlds and those worlds aren't walking together, it, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, we see it all the time. And uh, that's what people struggle with. That's honestly what a lot of times what brings them into the counseling office is they're trying to reconcile actual reality with what they want reality to be and if you can't force them together something has to give either you have to acknowledge that your perceived reality your cartoon world isn't working and you got to shift direction um or you got to continue denying actual reality and and it's really hard for people to let go of their cartoon world so to speak because it means that you're having to question what you think you know about the world and if you it, I, I say this in like my emotional functioning teaching when you hold too tightly to your beliefs such that you can't tell who you are from what you do or what you think, then what ends up happening is when what you think or, or what you believe or how you behave gets challenged, whether it's from an external source, somebody actually questioning you, hey, I don't think that that, that thing that you think is right, or actual reality tearing your bicep or your tricep saying you're not as strong as you think you are, um, you what ends up happening is it's it seems like an attack on self. It's an attack on who you are instead of just what you think or what you believe. And we get a very defensive response to that, a very defensive emotional reaction. And so, you know, if we take a case of somebody who may be, uh, you know, racist, and you say, hey, you know, uh, people who don't look like you are actually quite nice and they, they contribute to society and so forth, you'll get a, no, they don't. Instead of a oh maybe yeah. right because they've 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 held too tightly to that belief and it sounds like maybe what Frank yeah. was doing is trying to trying to live in two world or multiple worlds I don't know if it's two it's probably mo more than that and um, present this image um, but that's inconsistent and that's and that's why I really harp on authenticity transparency consistency so that we don't find ourselves in positions where we're just um, spitting out talking points for you know politics or religion or whatever. Uh, we actually own our beliefs, and we can hold them loosely, so that when they get challenged, we can go, "Well, maybe," because I don't, I don't know everything in the world. <laughs> I'm open to new information, um, but that's it's a practice, and, and if you haven't practiced that, it can be very, very hard to to start doing it. You know, it was like a Doctor Jekyll and Mister mm -hmm. Hyde. It was crazy, and he, and he, I mean, I didn't know that person when I read that. Those, those, those. Emails I put in there, those are authentic emails. Those are emails I found after he passed away. And it just... But, you know, when after I caught him and uh, he, he admitted that it was a mistake because he got caught, mm -hmm. I guess. 
So he admitted it was a mistake. He said he was sorry, and we were working on getting our marriage back together. And um, I thought things were going okay until when he did what he did. Um, but yeah, he uh, he was two different people because I knew I knew the, the the dark side and I knew the the great side. You know, I mean, um, when he smoked pot, he was. Um, I almost wondered if he was bipolar. Yeah. You know, I've never really known a lot of bipolar people, but it was almost like he was maybe bipolar or something. Well, the, was this, I mean, there's a lot of swings, I take it. So yeah. the good was probably really good, yeah. and the bad was yeah. awful. Oh, right? bad. And there was never really an even. Yeah. 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 Let me ask you a question. Like, how soon in the relationship does Mr. Wonderful go away and he starts putting you down? Probably, um, we were married for probably about six months, and the f the first thing that ever happened, I don't think I put that in the book, um, we had horses, and I was, we were cleaning our horses' saddles, getting ready to go riding, and the horse pooped, and he told me to clean it up, and so I went to clean it up, and I threw it into the horse stall. And he just lost it. He was mad because, and he called me names. And he threw the, the he threw the, um, uh, the towel at me. And I'm like, what is wrong with him? And then, and then it started, I started seeing other things. Uh, one day I came home after work and um, he was rinsing the horse, his friends were out there. He was rinsing the horse off, and um, I, because uh, he had ridden the horse, and I had said something, and I was fully dressed. My hair was curled, and I was in my suit, because I managed a fitness center, and um, he didn't like what I said, so he took the water hose and just wrenched me, and I went in the closet, and I cried. And I called the 700 Club. No, I called the PTL. And I talked to this black lady. And I asked her to pray for me in my marriage because I didn't know what I was doing. And that's when I started seeing him act the way he did. And through my whole marriage, you know, he would tell me, um, you know, I was pathetic and all that. But, you know, I tried to keep praying for him, believing God was going to change him. Well, you, you know, I have this saying, I always say, don't apologize for being a good person, right? Like, you, you don't have to, because I think what we do when we stay in bad relationships, and I, I came from a bad marriage, and, and I've been pretty honest with Jake, and even with you before this yeah. interview started, yeah. is like, I wasn't a saint, right. right? Like, I regret not leaving when things got bad because what happened is I started to justify my bad behavior as well I'm no worse than you you know right. what I mean right. um, but like there's a part of me you know I say this to my daughters all the time because with my second wife I got a do-over and I remember the first thing is like I'm never gonna say a bad word about her right like and, and I made it a rule right. because that shit gets habitual oh yeah right, right? Yeah. so like I never would say like because with my first wife, I'd be venting to my friends. I'm like, she's an idiot. Right. Like, even that could become habitual, right? right? Like, I won't say that about my wife now. I just won't do it. So I tell my daughters all the time, the first sign that somebody breaks yeah. 
you got to go because they they got to be your biggest cheerleader. Like my wife doesn't say anything bad about anybody. I agree. Yeah. Uh, so. Oh no, I'll never. I mean, I loved him very much, but I'll never allow myself to get into that situation ever again. He and I won't be fooled by someone who says they've got God in their heart. I won't, because I'm gonna watch, you know, and I'm gonna let time go and watch. But he, but he, uh, um, yeah, it was um, uh, more stuff I found out as time, you know, afterwards. But what? I'm not trying to bash him or anything, you guys, because I loved him. He was a great guy. I mean, he had a lot of good qualities too. No, no, and, and, and I want to make that perfectly yeah, clear. Yeah. In the book, you yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, talking about a love yeah. story, I think, yeah. you know, it's more yeah. interesting to talk about, like, yeah. red flags, right? Yeah. Um, but So don't put yeah. all of this stuff in there, okay? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think, I think the, the listening audience needs to understand, because I think the story, um, it, it's a cautionary tale as well, right? Because if you don't talk about these things, or some people think that being in... Um, like manic relationships or dysfunctional relationships is normal, and it's not normal. It's not normal, but see, what he did to me, and I was a very strong woman, what he did to me is he made, he made me believe that I couldn't be anybody because of who he was, and he made me who I was. And so he kept telling me that. He kept telling me that. So I thought, oh my gosh. If I leave, I'm going to be on the streets pushing a basket because he told me I can't get a job at McDonald's. And here, I'm believing him right? that I'm not smart anymore, you know? I can't do this stuff. Let me, let me jump in here. So um, what you guys are both describing, Mike and I have talked about this at length, so I can speak for him too, um, is an abusive relationship. And I'm just going to call it what it is. Um, that's a, it's, a, yeah. it's a very... You know, one up, one down, power differential, and that power differential is leveraged in a negative way to keep people hostage, whether it's through emotional hostage, like when you uh, you mentioned earlier, I couldn't take his guns away from him because he'd get upset. Well, that's that's being Ugh. held emotionally hostage because uh, you're afraid of his reaction to the thing that you're yes. trying to do to help. Um, or physical hostage, which is being sprayed with a water hose or uh, having guns pointed at you. Um, even though that only happened once, apparently once is too many. Um, I know Mike's shared stories. Did you guys ever acknowledge or did anybody ever suggest to you that you were in an abusive cycle? You know, I, uh, talked to this lady who, uh, was a pastor lady and, um, she would pray with me over this, but she never encouraged me to get out or anything. Um, oh, you just gotta, you just gotta just keep praying for him. But I gotta tell the ladies out there, and even men that are abu being abused, that that no, you can't allow people to treat you like that, no matter who they are. Um, I um, I'm ashamed that I did do that because you know I was a very strong woman. And uh, somehow he got me. I remember when he uh, found me, I lived uh, uh, right down the street from him. And he lived in this beautiful house. And I remember I used to ride my horse by and I'd say, God, I'd love to live in a house like that. Little did I know I'd marry the man. 
and I lived in the house. But um, I lived in a little house. It wasn't like gorgeous. It was, he called it a shack. And he would, when he would get mad at me, he would say to me, I should have left you in that shack. Oh, my God. It would just break my heart. You know, why would you want to say that to me? You're supposed to love me. You know, he had a lot of mental stuff going on in his head, you know, but he had a good, but when you saw him talking and you saw, you saw that part of him that everybody loved, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not trying to bash him. I'm not, I'm just telling the truth. No, no we're asking the question. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so there, Mike, there's Mike, this what, point. what about you? I want to hear your answer to that. Did you ever notice that, or did anybody about, ever suggest it to you? Oh, all the time. But but I I accepted like that type of behavior because where I came from in New Jersey, like even growing up in the family that I came in, somehow they convinced me that like if you didn't have that passion, you weren't really in love. Uh, really? Yeah, like yeah. you know what I'm saying. Like it, it's almost like that crazy behavior shows how much these two people love each other and then as you get older you realize no that's just toxic yeah. it is like it's super toxic i never told my mom or nobody <laughs> i never told anybody i kept it to myself yeah until until at the end when it started getting so bad and i start and i told my mom he might we were on the phone and i told my mom and uh, he heard me tell my mom and this was right before he took his life but, you know, he was losing control of me before I was controlled by him. Now I didn't respect his stuff anymore. I would let him know I'm going through your stuff. I left it a mess. And now he didn't have control over me. He didn't like that. Yep. You know? There's a part in the book, and I was blown away by this, Deborah. <laughs> and Because I, I remember I turned to my wife and I go, you, you said he... He was having an affair, and he and the affair was in the UK, was yes, in London or something, right? Yes. And you say, and this once again, like in the book, you almost like apologize for being a good person. You're like, I didn't mean to go through his stuff, but he, I hadn't heard from him in two weeks. Yeah. And I was afraid that maybe he had a heart attack out there. Now, Jake, yep. like this is the crazy part. Like, imagine I was worried about it. Yeah, imagine. Like, I can't even imagine taking off on Vicky. For two weeks and not calling every day. He didn't call me or nothing. I thought, oh, because he had a bad heart. He had stints put in. And um, I thought, oh, you know, maybe. Because when you drive, when you go on an airplane that long, it can affect right. your heart. And I thought, oh, maybe he's in a um, hospital or something. Why isn't he calling me? So I didn't have any, any way of getting a hold of him. I left his stuff alone. I, he never called me. So, Jake, this is a trip. I prayed, Jeremiah 33, 3, God said, ask me these things and I will show you. I couldn't get on the computer. All of a sudden, the computer popped open. And it was like, God, showing me. And I looked at it, and I found where he was staying. I found where, where, where then I saw these, these emails from this girl. And you know, realized prior to this time, before he had went, he was being really, really mean to me. And I'm like, why is he being so mean to me? You yeah. know? But yet I was still being 
letting work. Yeah, it's it's really easy to take advantage of that type, your type of um, loyalty and dedication with somebody by somebody who's um, playing games, you know, and um, and not being authentic and and consistent and transparent. And, and unfortunately, that's that's how it, you know it all fell fell apart. But uh, you know, you th- I'm thinking in terms of what I said earlier about perceptions of reality how you need to how you need to look to everyone else and how rigid that belief system can become so you got physiological ailments you got psychological ailments you got pressures from all directions you got financial ailments and then uh you lose control of the person you thought you could control the most around under your roof it makes sense that he would you know Uh, fall apart um yeah 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 he lost my respect Because the circle of trust had right. got broken, you know that's a very sacred thing. You know, yeah. do you think you think that if he wouldn't have taken his own life, do you think you guys would have ultimately ended up in divorce? Um, if he, cause see, he stopped praying with me. He stopped going to church with me. If he had decided to get back into, I mean, it would have been work. If he had decided to change his ways, and if he could, and get back and, and, you know, let God be the pyramid of the relationship like it was in the beginning, perhaps it would have worked out. But I don't know. Not not the way it was going. No. No. Hmm. How did you... I mean, I, I know you do kind of close it at the end of the book and, and talk about healing and stuff like that, but, like, you look great. I mean, clearly, your life hasn't completely fallen apart. I mean, you're in phenomenal shape, by the way. Right. <laughs> like when you walked yeah. up, I I literally was like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, I... Because I've been... I've been my, my ego has been dying lately because I'm, I'm getting older and I'm not who I was and stuff like that. But you're an inspiration, clearly, uh, especially with your dedication. I really started uh, uh, really focusing on that after he died because the way he would talk to me and put me down and say things. Because I used to compete when I was younger. Right. And, and he would tell me, oh, you're too skinny. You can't compete. He was always better than I was. So... After he died, I got my gun permit because he said I couldn't get a gun permit. That was very hard for me to do, get a gun permit after he did what he did. And Maggie, she was magnificent. She walked me through it. She helped me. And uh, I did it because I have PTSD. Really oh, I'm bad. sure you do. Yeah. I, I want to I yeah. ask you about and, that because yeah. that's a, I mean, we're yeah. a mental health podcast. So what was that like when you finally decided, 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 made the decision? <laughs> to uh, go forward and get a firearm when you already had that crazy, awful experience. Like, tell us about that. Well, he, I did it because I did it to show him I could do it because he said I couldn't mm, do it. That's very empowering. And I said, yeah, I said to myself, no, no, you're not going to make me crumble. You're not. Because, see, you know, when he did what he did in front of me, he thought I would crumble. He thought, oh, I'm going to make her crumble. Because I was bad. I had lost so much weight. I mean, I was down to 98 pounds. And uh, he thought I would crumble. And his his brother said to me um, after he died, now, Jake, how uncool is this? Well, Frankie told me he knew a, a, a 
a, a guy who took his life in front of his wife so she would never forget it. Now, why would his brother tell me something like that, you know? And I'm thinking, but you know, Frank had the last word. He always yeah. had the last word. And he had the last word that day. So take Frank out of this for a second, right? Because, like, forget the whole okay. craziness of it. Like, uh, for a lot of people, like, you never blamed the gun at all? No. Because uh, a lot of people would. No. A lot I, of people would have, because no. you, you say in the book, like, I wasn't no. a big firearms person. No, I don't blame the gun at all. We right. need guns. No. I don't blame the gun. If someone's going to hurt themselves, they're going to jump off a cliff. They're going to they're gonna do whatever they want. And the gun not, has nothing to do with them taking their life. Frank just chose to use the gun. Right. You know? But, I mean, uh, and a lot of men will do that because it's more permanent. It's, it's, you know, some aren't permanent. They get brain damage and nothing happens and they end up on life support. But Frank knew what he was doing. He used the hollow point and he did it. And, and it, was, uh, it was almost like I don't even know if he was really going to do it and then he decided to do it. So it was like a fast decision. Yeah. We, well, we, we address that, right? This is, this is what we do. We're trying to say... And a lot of people will give pushback on that and say, well, if it hadn't been for the gun, would he have made the decision in that moment with the item that was able to deliver? You know, I mean, if we can pretend that we remove all this stuff, you know, take the guns out, do, do we think he still kills himself in an impulse? And if so, like, it's not an impulse anymore because you got to go seek out the method. He needs to get, he needed to have yeah, help. Well, sure, he needed sure. to get, yeah, obviously. Um, the police officer told me that if he didn't do that in front of me, he had already decided he was going to do it. He said, so he would have done it. If he were going to jump off a bridge or if he was going to take a bunch of pills, whatever he decided to do, he would have done it. So the gun wasn't the issue. The gun just was there at the time when he, the scary, the scariest thing about your story when I read it, because I went, I went, I got chills. I was upstairs. I came downstairs. I read it aloud to my my wife. I wanted her to hear it. The scary part is how normal his day was up until that moment. Dude, he went to the yeah. movies all day. He went and got El Pollo Loco chicken. He came home. He, my little dog was happy to see him. Um, I ran downstairs. I was happy to see him. Um, in a million years, a million years, would never thought he he was thinking. Yeah, he would have never. You would have never thought Frank would have done that. Right. Yeah. That's the thing that freaks I think people out because because I'm a suicide loss survivor multiple times, and I tell the story. Jake and I have this cultural competence course, and I tell a story of. Um, you know, everyone always thinks like when someone's in that moment of crisis where they will complete a suicide, that they're giving all these signs, right? No. Like, right. Like, and it just, you're like, he went to the movies. He always enjoyed going to the movies. Yep. You know, he didn't give you, no. you didn't say a word. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the freaky part. Didn't say anything. And, and you notice people, a lot of people that actually go through with the suicide thing, a lot of them. Uh, you hear people that are crying out for help. Oh, I'm going to kill myself. Oh, I'm so depressed. Oh, blah, blah, blah. But a lot of those people, Frank was one of those people. He struggled with it. He struggled with that demon. He talks about it at the 700 Club, how he struggled with that yeah. demon. 
But he never let you know he struggled with it. And he, when the day he put the gun to his head, in a million years you would have never thought he would have done that. Never. Yeah, I lost a lot of respect for, for Frank in the book when you talked about him pointing the gun at you. Yeah. Like, I almost think you're very lucky to be alive because it doesn't sound like he was on... You know, like I said, I think um, I had a lot of people praying for me, um, my friends, because I was telling them what happened, what was going on in my life. Um, I honestly think God was in that room that day because God said, Frankie... If you want to take your life, you can, but you're not going to take her life. And so something came over Frankie, I swear to goodness. He turned like a shark with dark eyes. He went blank. He went blank and he, as he pointed the gun at me. He went blank. Then that's when, like a zombie. And then that's when he put the gun to his head. He didn't have no life in his eyes. And that's when he pulled the trigger. He was like, I don't know what he got over there in Amsterdam, but it wasn't good because he sure brought it back yeah. with him. Yeah. And he was dark. It was dark. So where are you now, uh, where are you at now with your with your process with, uh, you know, getting on with life? I mean, you, you alluded to working out and having some pride and, you know, overcoming a lot of the, the fears and, you know, kind of doing the, the I'll show you, which is not, I'm got no problem with that. I mean, that motivates you to keep moving. That's good. Um, but where would you say you are if you were to scale it, you know, like you're at your, your deepest, darkest when you're down to 98 pounds a while, a while ago, um, where are you and where would you like to be in the next, you know, I don't know, six months, 18 months, two years, whatever. Um, I wrote the book to close the chapter. I came back to Las Vegas to write the book because we got married in Las Vegas. So I wanted to finish this chapter of my life. So I finished it. Um, where would I want to be? I would like to be happy again. And that's my, my goal is to be happy again. I would like to uh, be by someplace by the water in a vintage house, that's my goal. And I lost my love for horses after Frankie died. Um, I lost my love for a lot of things because when when you get PTSD and things just, you could be in a room full of people and you're just right. alone. It's just how it is. Um, I, I want to live again and be happy again that's my goal and I want to be able to help people and uh, and that struggle with that demon um, PTSD and um, uh, abuse and uh, let women know it's okay if you want to um, it's okay to leave you know um, you you do have a place to go you know I want to be able to listen uh, and not be the answer. Yeah, a lot of people, uh, we work a lot with the domestic and sexual violence survivor community here at, at Zephyr, and a lot of times we hear the same trapped experience, the same you know sensation of being trapped from folks who have been abused and, and neglected and put down, and so there's a lot of suicide in that community too. And um, 
it's it's encouraging to hear that you're you're taking that those strides. Um, maybe share with the listeners what specific steps you've taken and what you plan to take in order to restore some of that joy. Well, I am looking to uh, start riding again. Uh, I love riding a horse because it's an empowering yeah. feeling. When you get on an animal like that that wants to fight with you and you can control it, it gives you power. And I want to take, I want to take my power back. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, maybe, maybe work on um, uh, doing something for suicide and abuse. Uh, I have a counselor that wants to do that with me. Um, she's been absolutely amazing. Um, uh, speak to these people who struggle with this, and um, uh, be there for them. And you know, I don't know what God's plan is for my life, but I'm sure it's going to be great because it's always great when God's in. I agree. Yeah. So. Amen to that. Mike, we might have to change the name of the podcast to Guns, Mental Health, and God, the way that these are going. Yeah. All right. Seems like it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's just funny because, like, it comes and goes, right? Like, yeah. We, it becomes and, a theme. And believe me, uh, I got a dirty mouth <laughs> when I get upset. <laughs> but, you know. I'm only human, right? Have you, how has the book been received so far? People just like you, just what you said, and they just oh, Deborah, and then but they say, I, I feel like I know you now. I feel like oh, I feel bad for you, or or I'm 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 happy for you. I hope you can get on with your life now. Stuff like that. Yeah, it's really interesting because like. You know, knowing kind of a little bit of the backstory and then going into the book, understanding that I was probably going to be reading about a man whose life started to kind of unravel and you had to be there to, like, take a lot of that on. But then when you kind of hit the affair. <laughs> That's tough. Yeah, because I was like, she's had enough. Like, come on, man. Like, and I even said to my wife, like, I go, this guy makes me angry because he just seems so sloppy about certain things. Right, not that you could ever justify. Like I'm not sitting here to the listener saying he wasn't sloppy though. I found it accidentally. He kept it. the cops couldn't even get into his phone. He had locked it so many times. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I, I could see. He was good. You were also very giving, right? Like, yeah. like I, my wife once told that about me, and I, I said, "What do you mean?" She said, "I I'll let you do whatever you want." Yeah, and, I, did. And, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I let him do whatever you want. I trust him. Right. Why would I not? Right. Well, and, yeah. and almost you you are the definition of what the counterpart in a relationship should be, right? Like, we should be able to completely trust our significant other with everything, right? If we say, like, if the person says, like, I want to handle the finances, like, that's, a, yeah. you know, your, it's your husband, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. okay. Like, if you want to take on that job, then, right. you know, I trust you. Yeah, I'm not going to question you. Yeah. So, I mean, like like I said, I, I don't think ever apologize for being a good person or a good lover or anything like that. It's just, you know, it, it's, I don't know. It, it, I guess it's, you know, when I was reading it, I kind of wanted it to, to be this, because you take it, you, you're building, you're building, you're building, and it gets dark, and then all of a sudden it's just like there's that knockout punch. And I was like, man, how much can one person take? Like, the book is actually very inspirational, and, and 
I, I think I'm going to make my daughters read it because I think they need to understand that. What like, not to get into. Right, and look for patterns and, you yeah, know. Because I didn't know those patterns. I came from a, a, a Christian home. My grandfather was a pastor. My father was magnificent. He was just a great example for a man. He never... Um, he never cheated on my mom. He always did things with us. I, I was not, I didn't know, you know, I, my mom never questioned my dad. My mom did all the bills. She took care of all the finance stuff. My dad just gave her the check. It was a great, we had a good family. But then I get married to Frankie and, uh, you know, he came from the projects, you know. He, he, uh. He had to take care of his brothers and sisters. You read his book. You know, he he lived where they would throw people off off the balconies. You know, he would see bodies splatter. He got guns put to his head. I wasn't raised around that. I was raised from a totally different cloth. He used to tell me that. Uh, you are cut from silk. I am cut from leather. We're, we're black and white. We're cut from two different worlds. And we were. But he liked what I gave him. And when he was at home, he was a different man. He was like playing with his horses and his animals. And he was, he was happy. But when he left, I don't know what he did. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, yeah. it's hard to answer. Um, but, but what's, what, what I'm hearing is, is a lot of, you know, I mentioned earlier, let, let the death not be in vain. Right. But really, it's more like let your survival not be in vain, too. Um, you're right. There was some spiritual intervention there that kept you alive, and I think you're totally, you're aware of the well, the are, charge now that you have to go make that worthwhile. You know what I mean? And I, I can I can hear yeah. that when I asked you what you plan to do, and your your voice changed. It it went up in tone. You were more confident. You were you you had hope and, and inspiration coming out. Uh, you know, talking about the dark stuff, it was it was a very different you. And I don't know you longer than the it's hard. hour and twenty minutes we've been talking, yeah. but but I could tell that change in yeah. it. Like I can I can I know you've got a calling now, and I think you're you're pretty close to figuring it out. Um, and then what's left is to God, commit. God has got yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, something. There's something that I'm. I mean, connecting. I don't believe we didn't meet for a reason. I believe people meet for reasons. The dots are connected. There's a reason why dots get connected, and um, and because my whole life has been happening like this since my husband died. I mean, just all the stuff. I wrote a book. I couldn't have done that. I don't even know how I wrote the book. But I did it. And it's good, too, because uh, even though I didn't read it, Mike was sending me screenshots of pages. And I was like, she writes pretty well. So, you know, congratulations for you know doing it appropriately <laughs> and, and well, too. Uh, yeah. I read it, and I can't believe it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I wrote that. Now, do you expect there to be some pushback? When to kind Because it's fairly new right i got it a couple of weeks ago like i try not to put anything in there with names because i didn't want any you know any problem when when he when he died um the family um you know people are crazy when people die they come and they want things and um i don't want to deal with them i cut my my life life support off from all of that stuff because it was uh you know, they think Frankie was the rich and famous. 
Yeah, yeah that, that happens. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm nowhere near like the fame that, that Frank had, but I remember like when my day back many, many moons ago and many, many pounds ago, um, <laughs> I, I was modeling in New York City. And I remember the first time that I had like a billboard because uh-huh. I was at Abercrombie and Fitch, and the first time people saw me in a magazine, yeah, and it was crazy because you know I'm just punk kid from New Jersey, and I'm going home and I'm running into people, and people are pitching me business ideas, yeah, and and I'm literally like, why are you talking to me about this? And they're like, you got money, and I'm like, yeah. Because and you saw me on a billboard, or you he saw got me that all the time, right? Like yeah. they didn't realize. I'm like, dude, I got paid 250 bucks for that. Like, <laughs> yeah, people were, would send him their their scripts, and um, well, the person that he was uh, got caught with, I think she thought he was some sort of producer or something, and she was trying to get into the rap stuff, you know, and so she was really really young, and uh, I think that kind of stroked his ego and um but yeah he got a lot of that people thought he that he could get them into uh, uh hollywood and all this stuff but he struggled with it you know yeah, yeah. it wasn't like that what for for those that are listening and never had this experience like how what's the start of picking up the pieces when your significant other and you guys were pretty isolated it sounds like when you guys were on your ranch it was just you and him and it's not like you had this huge support system yeah like i mean you know the insurance policy but that's you know you you got to start over you've dedicated everything. everything right lost everything i lost my i had a short sell my house uh, oh man, I thought it was going to get any worse when I had to walk my horse to the horse trailer and give him away. And I just felt, God, is what is going to happen? I mean, uh, beautiful furniture that nobody would give you any money for and you just had to give it away. Um, my life just was crumbling in front of me. and um, But, you know, I didn't crumble here and I'm I'm gonna you're gonna see me back on my throne pretty soon um, I'd like to make this book into a movie I would like Tyler Perry to be part of it I really would I think he would I just he's it's been on my heart and I think I'm supposed to pursue it so I'm gonna continue pursuing him I hope he hears this uh, because he said, don't ever give up on your dreams. So I'm not going to give up on my dreams. And if he wants to help me with my dream, I, don't, I have him on, on, I'm on it. So, um, yeah, so that's. Yeah, I um, I definitely could see this story playing could out. Could De- yeah, absolutely. Um, even if it was like a lifetime. See, the way you would start this story is you would start it with him as a little boy in the projects. Okay. And then it would go into the story of him being the Marine into his little bit of the Tupac, not too much Tupac stuff, but then into us meeting and it would go into our love story and it would go start with the day where I was in the room when he did what he did. But then the story would start and then it would go into the whole story and end where my Jaguar was. Right. (laughs) Did you see that? Yeah. I mean, it would touch your heart. Yeah. It would touch it would. your heart. Tears would it be would. coming. Yeah. Did, did you get 
inundated with, I mean, I think people are probably wondering this, did you get inundated with like death row stories and Tupac stories? I'll tell you what happened. Um, they told me to stay off the internet because uh, people were posting stuff like, oh, Frankie ain't really dead. He's with Tupac and Cuba smoking a fatty. Or, uh, oh, Frankie had to pretend like, oh, Frankie had to kill himself because they were going to kill his wife and his family. Uh, all these crazy, crazy. And the cops told me, don't get on the internet because it was just blowing up. Because, oh, we can't believe Frankie took his life. He was a good Christian, devout Christian man. Yeah, I guess there's some, probably a lot of conspiracy theorists that carry that same conspiracy so theory. So I'm breaking that right Right, now. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, because yeah, I, I do remember hearing that when he took his life. Like, I saw it somewhere. I don't know where, but I remember being like, wow, he took his life. Like, I wasn't, I'm not who I am today, like, with Walk Talk America. So when that happened, it was, like, you know, years ago. But I thought, ah, how strange that is, you know. But you, so you were, you, like, that's one element of the book that I think we kind of glossed over, too, is, is the whole relationship between, you know, interracial marriage. Oh, yeah. Because, like, you point out scenarios where he... You know, what would be upset the way people were looking at you guys. Oh, and... yeah. We would go to eat. I never thought of prejudice because I never saw Frankie as black. I just saw him as Frank. Right. And um, uh, we would go places to eat and older white people would be staring at us. And he always noticed that kind of stuff. And he'd say, look at those people over there. They're staring at us because I'm black and you're white. Oh, one day I ran into the door uh, when we first got married and I split, you know, this part right here. I was rushing and I hit the edge of the door and I split my head right here and it was bleeding. And the first thing he said is, great, a black man taking a white woman to emergency. He always thought of those things. And then, of course, when I went, they kept asking me, what happened to you? Yeah, you can what tell happened us. to you? you? Can tell us. But I told him what happened to me. I told him the truth. <laughs> right. You know, right. and that was the truth. Yeah. It's crazy how people do that. And I, I, I never realized how tough that was until I was married to Frankie. Yeah. And Black and white, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It is real. It's a real thing. Yeah, to put a bow on that too, oh. I'll go back to the projection. You know, when people throw qualities onto us that they need us to be, just the same as we throw out things in the world that we think we need the world to have us be, um, you know, people will ascribe those kinds of things uh, without even knowing it. You know, these days we call it unconscious bias. And I mean, for me, it's like that's it's new today unconscious bias like yeah well that's, that's been around in psychology for like 120 years um but uh it's it's again it's a it's needing the world to fit what you need it to be rather than meeting the world where it is um two people can be interracial and married and happy and not like, there are no problems like what do you mean you don't see skin colors like i don't know i see i see god inside this person like I don't, it's not it's not a thing yeah I just saw yeah. Frank. I just saw Frank. I just, that's all I saw was yeah. Frank. I never thought of him like that. He was Frank. Well, where can people get the book? Um, it's available on Amazon. Um, it's called The Private Life of Big Frank. Uh, also, Newman Springs Publishing. They did it. And their phone number is 800 634 7189 
and I believe they have a trailer on their website. It's a pretty nice trailer. And then I believe it's in, it's in um, uh, let's see, I have wrote a couple things down. Barnes & Noble, and then also iTunes. So you guys uh, give me reviews, good and bad. I'm cool with that. I can handle it. I've been through enough already, so I can handle your bad reviews. Did you read your own good. book, or did somebody else read it? You did? I read it a lot of times. I had to keep uh, editing it. No, no for, the audio. for the audio book. Yeah. Oh, no, I didn't. I only have iTunes right now. I don't do audio yet. No, so, but... Oh. Like on iTunes. Oh, no, I didn't read it. Okay, you got somebody else. No, I yeah. haven't even heard it yet. Yeah, I, heard need it, to, yeah. I need to listen. <laughs> yeah. it's They still need to do a press release on me. They're going to do a press release and, uh, I guess, a book signing. Well, don't forget to mention the um, wildly popular international podcast, Guns and Mental Health by Walk the Talk America. <laughs> I actually put you on nice. my website. Nice. Yeah, she did. Yeah, you're That's on my awesome. website. Yeah. What's that website? Uh, it's uh, www.theprivatelifeofbigfrank.com. So www.theprivatelifeofbigfrank.com. Awesome. And his... Uh, his uh, Interview with the 700 Club is on there. My interview with Vegas Vibes is on there, which I'm going to be doing another interview with them. And um, and then you'll see his movie, uh, Before I Wake, it's on there. And then his book, Got Your Back. And oh, actually, let me show you his book he did. Yeah, I brought it, actually. Here's, here's his book. Yep, that's the one. I have that somewhere Got in this your house. Back. Yeah. <laughs> and then of course my book. The Alexanders wrote a book. <laughs> He's gotta be looking down on me going, Oh, yeah. good job. <laughs> yeah, we gotta believe that. <laughs> you know how many wives still keep yeah. going, you know. Well, in the interest of time and honoring everybody's time, Mike needs to ask his closing question that he asks of every guest. Okay. Okay. Deborah, how do you attend to your mental health now? How do I attend my mental health now? Um, I go, I have a counselor that I'm seeing, uh, Grace and Grief, and uh, her name is Kareen. And um, we sit and we, um, we talk. And um, I, um, uh, I, I'm on medication also to help it. Um, and it works for you? Um, it does. I take uh, trazodone. It helps me rest because I have... Uh, uh, insomnia real bad. I still yeah. do have nightmares. And so um, I take Trazodone and then I take uh, uh, something for anxiety that helps me. And um, But I, I try not to take depression medicine because I didn't like how it made me feel. It made me feel like I was in a bubble. And I'm not saying if anybody's listening not to take it because if it helps you, please take it. Absolutely. Because that's important. But it's nothing wrong with taking medication if you have to take it because I have to take it. It helps yep. me. That's exactly kind of where I wanted to lead yeah. that because we have a lot of people in yeah. the firearms industry for some reason that want to blame medication for things. And mm. I, we don't want to stigmatize those that mm. actually take medication and actually yeah. feel good and it works for. Yeah. yeah. It, so I'm glad you yeah. said that. Yeah. Well, I sure do appreciate you carving out the time. Thank you for being so uh, open and honest and uh, vulnerable and sharing all that stuff. Yeah. I, think, I think people will hear this and really gain some insight as well as some compassion and hopefully you know shift their worldview about what celebrity really means and 
and um, and also you know take a look at their own lives and maybe make some adjustments if they need to as far as aligning expectations with reality you know so thank you very much Deborah Alexander uh, you can find her at all the places she just listed off um, and uh, we uh, we thank our listening audience without you guys this wouldn't be possible please share the show around uh, subscribe to the podcast uh, go to the website wtta.org slash love to take a free mental health screening free and anonymous and again thanks to our sponsors arms Corps and zephyr wellness which is a company i own up here in northern nevada arms Corps produces great ammunition and great firearms they're a big supporter of us they've got our materials in their boxes and if you happen to be a manufacturer of either firearms or accessories to firearms we would love to have you put our stuff in your boxes as well so that people can get healthy and stay happy and not take their own lives so on behalf of all of our family, uh, far and wide, and thank you to Deborah. Uh, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye-bye. We might have to change the name of the podcast to Guns, Mental Health, and God, the way that these are going.